I am delighted for the occasion today of uh, appointing Eric as elder. I'm delighted with the church's affirmation of that last Sunday evening, unanimous consent. Um, I've worked with Eric in the past. I have known him for over 20 years now, and I'm thankful for him, for his family, for his testimony, his dedication to Christ, and we are blessed to have him with us and to be appointed as elder here in the congregation. In light of that, I would like to speak on the subject of the New Testament church elder this morning, and if you would, take your Bibles with me and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 3, and then when you get that, keep your finger there, we'll be right back, but look also at Titus chapter 1. You'll notice the similarity of these two passages, we'll be looking primarily at First Timothy chapter 3, but I want to take time also for... Uh, to notice Titus chapter 1 as well. Titus 1, I'll begin reading with verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested his word through preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, His children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and able to rebuke those who contradict. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And then 1 Timothy chapter 3. This saying is trustworthy. Verse 1, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, 
hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, why, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for this happy occasion in the life of our church that you have brought us to. We love to see how you provide for your church. And we thank you for that today. We pray that you will help us on this occasion to shore up in our own thinking what the office of elder is and what is required of him and help us to see from that what a Christian ought to be, what the ministry is all about. And we pray through all of this that our Lord Jesus, who made us his own, will be honored through it. We pray in his name. Amen. I suppose there's a sense in which we should have, we would have done better to look through this passage together a month or two ago, whenever it was we first announced uh, that we would be seeking to nominate, or that we had nominated uh, Eric for the eldership, uh, but we didn't. And um, RBC, I think we are aware of these qualifications, and I know that has been on your mind for the last month or so uh, since we announced that, and uh, you were responsible to think through these things before you gave your vote. And we've done that, but I think it would be helpful as well to go back again now and see it. And I'm, I'm happy to say, let me just say it up front, I'm happy to say that in regard to these qualifications of elder in the case of Eric Connor, that I don't know one of these that even could raise a question, and I'm thankful that God has provided for us in that way. Appointing elders in every church was a high priority of the Apostle Paul. He would go on his missionary enterprise, he would see people come to Christ, he would organize church, but his mission wasn't done until he had appointed officers in the church, and elders were a very high priority for him in appointing them. Luke tells us that in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, he appointed elders in every church. We saw that in, first, in uh, Titus, in fact, Titus chapter 1 that we've just read, uh, where Paul says in verse 5, that I've left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul did not set out merely to win people to Christ and not merely to gather them together into churches. It was needful for him to appoint elders to lead the congregation in each new area where he went. And so there's clearly in the mind of the Apostle Paul a sense of priority, a sense of importance attached to this office of elder. And in fact, he says that here in 1 Timothy 3 when he calls this a noble task. And in fact, he couches it in, a, in an interesting way. The saying is trustworthy. So here's something that the, the churches had said. This is a familiar saying in the churches of the first century. And the saying was this. 
If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So this was commonly recognized in the churches. This was commonly said. And here Paul gives it his own imprimatur and says, it's a trustworthy saying. It is a noble task that someone would aspire to this, to this office. And the reason he holds this office in such high regard is the role or the place that it has in God's saving purpose. He speaks of that, if you'll go back to Titus chapter 1 again, in those opening verses where he gives the greeting to Titus, he speaks in terms of his call to the ministry himself, that this is God's purpose. The time has come that the salvation has been accomplished through Christ, and now it's time for that message to go out to the world. And therefore... I have sent you to Crete to appoint elders in every town. This is part of God's saving purpose. The saving work of Christ has been done. The promise of salvation has been fulfilled. And now this proclamation of this gospel must go out to the world. And every local congregation needs to be gathered together. Every local congregation is a gospel outpost for the expansion of the God's kingdom And in order to do that effectively, there must be men who can lead the congregations aright for it. And it is this noble task of leading God's people and teaching the things of God that makes this such a sense of priority for the Apostle Paul. And in fact, if you'd like to turn back a page, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, he gives us there the role of the office. 2 Timothy 2.2, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's the work of the ministry. You've heard it. You've been taught. You've learned it. Now teach others so that they, in turn, can teach others. And on it goes. This is the purpose, God's purpose for this age. As I say, each local congregation is a gospel outpost for the expansion of God's kingdom. And so these men, these elders, are appointed to carry out oversight of the congregation, and their office, of course, focuses on teaching and proclamation of the Word of God, spiritual oversight in the lives of God's people, propagating the gospel, instructing in what we believe and why, instructing in godly living. This is what God requires of us. This is what God has provided for us to do that He takes the word of God and he teaches and he applies and he exhorts and he pleads and he encourages and he even rebukes, as we've seen in in Titus. Now, I think before we go through the passage, it may be good just to take an aside here and talk about the titles that are given to the office. In verse 1 here, 1 Timothy 3, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, I don't like to give Greek words unless there's a purpose, but there's a point to it. I'll make it a little bit. Here's the word episkopos, where we get our word episcopal. This is the word bishop. In your King James Version, it'll be translated that way. If anyone aspires to the office of a bishop or overseer, it's what the word means, he desires a noble task. Now, if you look over at, so here we're dealing with the qualifications of a bishop. If you look back at Titus chapter 1, look at verse 5 again. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put put what remained into order and appoint elders. 
in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, husband of one wife, children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, a bishop, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, and so on. So here we have an elder is a bishop. An elder is a bishop. Two different terms, emphasizing different things, but the same office. Jim Grider always addresses me as bishop. I told him I'm bucking for pope. He won't do it, but bishop is proper. Elder is one, but the bishop is an elder, and elder is a bishop, an overseer. Now look over at 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 5. How did I come up with that? 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll look at verses 1 to 4 here. So I exhort elders among you as a fellow elder. This is actually an interesting statement on its own where the Apostle Peter refers to himself as a fellow elder. So the office of apostle has, in a sense, melded down to the office of elder. When an apostle is in a settled congregation, he functions as an elder in the church. It also teaches us that something of the authority of of the apostles has been brought to the elders to lead the congregations. The authority of apostles is unique, and it's way beyond anything that an elder has. But, but in the sense of leading in the congregation, here now it's been passed on to the elders. So Peter refers to himself as a fellow elder. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God. That's our word, pastor. That's the verb form of it, pastor, the flock of God that is among you. Exercising episcopeo, oversight, bishopric. So here we have, well, I'll keep reading, exercising oversight that is, as a bishop, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will relieve, receive the unfading crown of glory. And here Christ is the chief pastor. Chapter 2 of this same epistle he refers to him as the chief bishop of our souls. So here we have then an elder is a bishop, is a pastor, the three terms used interchangeably to refer to the same office. Uh, I don't know that I'll take the time for it. If you'd like to jot it down, write down Acts chapter 20. Uh, You'll find there where Paul calls, verse 17, the elders of the church at Ephesus, and he gives his farewell discourse there to the elders there in that church in Ephesus. And in verse 28 of Acts 20, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which he has made you overseers. He's made elders overseers, bishops, to care for the church of God. There's our word pastor again. To pastor the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So there again we have an elder is a bishop, is a pastor. Three terms used interchangeably. They each have their own area of emphasis, an elder. That term emphasizes something of the maturity of the man. Is it progress in grace? 
spiritual maturity, maturity in the faith, and so on. A bishop, that's his managerial function. He's to oversee the affairs of the church, to manage uh, the affairs of the church, and to pastor, receiving, a, uh, emphasizing the idea of feeding the flock and leading and guiding and so on. So they each have their respective uh, areas of emphasis, but the terminologies refer to the same office. Now, there are denominations that are shaped around what I consider a misunderstanding of this simple observation that an elder is a bishop as a pastor. So your Episcopalian uh, form of government, the rule of bishops, above the congregations, and you know, so you have pastors and then bishops over them in the rule, I think is a misunderstanding of what we see here, that a bishop is a pastor. Um, and, of course, you have the ultimate example of a, an Episcopal government in the Church of Rome where you have bishops and then you have archbishops and you have cardinals and then the pope sitting at the top, things like that. You have Presbyterian government, that's the Greek term presbyteros, which is our word elder. So a rule of elders is what Presbyterian rule is. What we have here is something of a hybrid mix uh, where we have elder rule, Presbyterian rule in that, section, in that sense, uh, but also we have congregational rule in which we have votes for uh, various things as well. But these three, elder, these three uh, titles then refer to the same office. A bit of an aside, but I thought it'd be helpful to clarify that an elder is a bishop, is a pastor. Um, in our common parlance today, pastor is usually the word that's used for the guy on staff who does most of the preaching, elders for the lay elder. That's a convention that works for a lot of people. I don't care. Um, just make sure we understand that a bishop is an elder, is a pastor. And I think we should call Eric Cardinal Connor. There are related descriptions of this office of elder in the, in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy 5, it's those who work hard among you and are over you in the Lord. Hebrews 30, 13, verse 7, those who speak to you the word of God. Um, Hebrews 13, 17, those who keep watch over your souls. And so the congregation is obliged then to obey and to follow their faith and so on. And you have these various descriptions of this office now that we're considering this morning. This is the noble task now that Paul has in mind in 1 Timothy 3. Now, such a noble task must not be relinquished to just anyone. And so in verses 2 to 7 here in 1 Timothy 3, Paul insists in some detail that in keeping with the, this office, the men appointed to this office must be exemplary Christian men. Now, that's the long and short of the passage. We'll go through the particulars of it. But notice he says, an, an, an overseer must be, verse 2, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. Don't lower the bar. These are requirements for the office. An overseer must be. This is essential for the effectiveness of, it, of his work. We dare not lower the bar. I've said it for years, I think since the first time I taught on this, um, back in the 80s. Better no elders than the wrong ones. And Paul has given us these qualifications to, and for reasons that we'll see as we go through, that because the men fulfilling this office must be capable of doing it faithfully. 
Now, in some churches, of course, if the man's a prominent businessman or if he's wealthy, then, of course, he's qualified to be a, hold an office in the church. Sometimes it's, uh, well, he's not been very faithful, but if we make him an officer, he will be faithful. Uh, that, you appoint know, him for that. And sometimes, of course, it's just you find somebody willing to fill the spot, and that worked. Paul is insistent here. It must be, and if you're wondering in the Greek, yes, it must. It is necessary that these qualifications be met. So what are they? Number Verse 2, he begins with this broad, all-encompassing qualification. An overseer must be above reproach, above criticism. Uh, King James famously translated this blameless, and that almost says too much. It certainly doesn't mean faultless. No son of Adam is faultless. But what is he saying here is that in his observable life, There are no glaring weak spots, no obvious kinks in his armor. No one is able to say, he can't lead other people. He can't even manage his own affairs. He must be above reproach in that sense. Now, this really, this first qualification is something of a summary of everything that will follow. Because what we have in what follows are particular items of Christian character and ability that we have to talk about. But this is a broad, all-encompassing summary of all the rest. There's nothing in his life that calls his character into question. He's an exemplary Christian. We'll talk a lot about that as we go through. All right, the second one, still in verse 2, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about this. What is he talking about here? A husband of one wife, one at a time? What's going on? Well, it certainly certainly puts a lie to the Roman Catholic requirement of a celibate clergy. But the question here is, who is excluded by this? Husband of one wife. Well, it's not likely that Paul is excluding here a man who's never been married. He's still single. He's not saying here a man has to be married, husband of one wife in that sense. Paul himself evidently was not married as he wrote this. It's not likely either that Paul is prohibiting a remarried widower from becoming an elder. Now, some have taken that position. Uh, he's, his wife has died. He's remarried again. He's not the husband of one wife. He can't be an elder. That's not likely what Paul has in mind here. Uh, the New Testament everywhere gives express permission uh, for remarriage after Uh, the death of the spouse. Paul's explicit about that, for example, in Romans chapter 7. All marriage ties end at death. Uh, That's not likely what's going on, and not many have bought into that interpretation. Some, and many actually, have taken this to say that this is a prohibition of divorcees from serving as an elder. Now, that is more reasonable. I don't think it's what he's aiming at, but it's at least more reasonable because the divorce was so rampant in the um, Roman Empire at that time. Um, But whether this refers to divorcees who have remarried or something like that, it's still questionable. Now, being divorced might, not does, might reflect on the poor management of his home. And in that sense, then, we reflect back on some of the other uh, qualifications here, and it could disqualify him. I think it's a possible interpretation. I don't think it's likely. We'll see why in just a minute. 
it might be also, and many have advanced this, that Paul is prohibiting a polygamist from taking the office of, of an elder. Now, that has been largely discredited because polygamy was, was not allowed in the Roman Empire. Well, officially not allowed, but it was widely practiced in the outlying areas, and so it could be that Paul is talking about that. It was tolerated somewhat in Jewish culture. The problem with that interpretation is in chapter 5, we have a widow who was the, hu- the wife of one husband, and that's clearly not talking about polygamy because that was unheard of in that direction. So it's probably not the right. So most likely, and I think what we're left with, is to say this is a moral requirement. And it might be helpful just to translate it that way instead of a husband of one wife, just translate it as a man of one woman. He's a one-woman man. He's not a philanderer. He doesn't have eyes for other women. He's faithful to his wife. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here. He's prohibiting marital unfaithfulness. He's not a philanderer. His eyes don't stray. He's faithful to his wife. He's a one-woman man. And I think that's what Paul is after here. Next, still in verse 2, speaks in terms of the man's self-mastery. I think we can put it that way. We have three qualifications here in a row that speak of his self-mastery. He's temperate, he must be self-controlled, and respectable. Temperate, that is not given to excess. He's self-controlled, he's well-balanced, he's careful, he's sane in his judgments, he's capable of clear thinking when he's under pressure. He's going to need that. He's capable of making sound judgments when he's pressed. He's temperate. He's not given to explosions. Next, self-controlled. Closely related to that, he's sensible. He's moderate. He's sober-minded. He's not given to extremes. He does not give to blow-ups. He's self-controlled. Somebody contradicts him or disagrees with him, his immediate response is not to blow up and holler and scream. He's self-controlled. Next, respectable. That is, he's of good behavior. His life is well-ordered. He does what is appropriate. He's a respectable man. It's the opposite of chaos and confusion. His life's not a mess. But he's decent, he's orderly, he's self-controlled in his outward behavior. Next, still in verse 2, he's hospitable. Literally here, lover of strangers. Lover of, I think stretch it, say lover of others. That is, he's one who shows kindness and hospitality. Um, not just to the members of his church, but to people he doesn't know well as well. He's kind, he's hospitable. Now, last in verse 2, we have the one exception in this list. Throughout the list, we have the emphasis on matters of Christian traits and character. Here is one ability that is emphasized, his teaching ability. He must be able to teach. That is, he's not only well-informed biblically, although it assumes that, doesn't it? He's well-informed, but it's not just well-informed. He's able to communicate that as well. He's able to teach. He's a man then who is able to say, this is what we believe, and here is why. He's a man who's able to take the scriptures 
and with others say, here's what the Bible requires, here's what we must do, here's what we must believe. He's able to, as we saw in Titus, refute false teachers. He's able to establish biblical truth and explain it to others. And he's able to bring the word of God to bear on the lives and the behavior of the people of God. Here's how we will behave. Here's how we will not behave. Takes the word of God and brings it to bear on the lives of people, both in instruction and in exhortation. He's able to teach. As we saw in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2, that's the job description, the things that he has learned. He's to pass on to others that they can teach others also. Now, if you want to flip back to Titus chapter 1, which we saw, Paul elaborates on this one a bit there. You look at Titus 1 and verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as he's taught. Now, notice the implications of that. Holding firm to the trustworthy word as he's been taught. So so he's been well-informed, and he's got a clear grasp of it, and he's committed to it. He's holding firm to what he's been taught so that he's able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and so on, and they need to be shut up. So here's part of the job description. He can teach. He, He understands it. He gets what the Bible teaches and requires, and he's able to explain that, and he's able to insist on it, and he's even able to refute those who contradict it. A couple of things here that I think would be good to mention. Last Sunday night, um, during the question time uh, for Eric, uh, two questions came up that I I think deserve more more attention. They're good questions, very reasonable to be asked. Um, One was asked, uh, in fact, a couple of people have asked about this during the process. Has Eric had seminary training? And does this, and is uh, some counseling ability required? Those, Those two. And what I want you to see is what Paul requires here is that the man is able to teach. He's learned in the scriptures, and he's able to teach them, able to bring them to bear on the lives of the people. Where he got that learning is not mentioned. Could have been brought up in the local church to learn it. Could have gone to seminary to learn it. But he understands the scriptures, and he's able to teach them. And he's able to bring the scriptures to bear on the lives of people. That's counseling. And so here we have the requirement. He's able to teach. Now, I should say also that this is relative to the congregation. I doubt, for example, Paul was in Thessalonica for only a very short time. And when he left, he left men in charge, presumably elders. The term is not used there, but presumably elders, because the Thessalonians are exhorted to be obedient and to follow their faith. So we have elders here established after a very short time in Thessalonica. I wonder if those elders would have been fit to serve, say, at Corinth, where Paul had spent 18 months and they were so full of troubles, or Rome. And so it can be relative to the congregation. In Reformed churches, the bar tends to be a little higher In fact, Eric, I have to tell you that one of the requirements for eldership in Reformed Baptist Church is that you memorize verbatim the two volumes of Stephen Charnock's The Existence and Attributes of God, and you have to be thoroughly acquainted with it for teaching. So there might be some relative... 
the, the qualification may be relative to the congregation. And I think that's, that's fair to keep that in mind. And yet, wherever he is, he must be able to teach. Bring the word of God to bear. Now, if I can just give some observation here uh, from experience. I'm old enough to have seen some big changes, sweeping changes in churches over the last 40 or more years. When I started out, you hardly ever saw a church with elders, plural, leading a congregation. You had the senior pastor, and then you had a board of deacons who, in more or less ways, functioned as elders, and together they made the decisions to lead the church. Um, Reformed Baptists, um, S. Lewis Johnson had a wonderful influence in this, pushing this idea of of, uh, plurality of elders in a given congregation. John MacArthur has had massive influence in that regard. Uh, And I think it's a good thing to recognize, as Luke says in Acts chapter 14, Paul appointed elders, plural, in every church, singular. There's a plurality of, of men leading the congregation. It's good that we've recognized that. And now at this point, 40 years later, uh, we, we see this kind of church government everywhere. And that's a good thing. I'm not criticizing it. What I am going to criticize is the way that it's been carried out. I've seen too many times that in the rush to meet that qualification of a, or that standard of a plurality of elders, we've lowered the bar, and usually where we've lowered the bar is right here, apt to teach. And you bring men into the office who aren't fit to be there and aren't capable of it, that are ready for it, and the church pays for it. And I've seen it many times over where the church is hurt because we've dropped the bar right here. He must be able to teach. Now, I'm, I'm 65, Pastor Greg is 75, Pastor Boyd is significantly older than that. <laughs> it's not going to be long before you have to appoint some successors. We won't be here that much longer. And I just want to exhort you on all of these, but in particular on this one, because this is where it's usually dropped. You must not drop the bar. He must be able to teach. Now we come to verse 3. And here Paul speaks of his drinking habits. He's not a drunkard. Not addicted to wine is what the word means here. He's not one who drinks too much. Now, this is not an absolute prohibition of alcoholic beverage, but it is a serious warning that an elder is not one who can be preoccupied with alcoholic drink. He must be above that. He's not going to be known as a drinker. It's part of his self-mastery. And in fact, that idea of self-mastery is carried over into the next one in verse 3. His temper and disposition. He's not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. So not violent, that is, he's not a bully, he's not given to blows. He doesn't have to make the way in the congregation by punching people in the nose. He doesn't have to explode, he's not a striker. Um, He may need to rebuke, he might even need to rebuke sharply. Titus talks about that, but he settles his disputes with his words and not his fists. He's not a bully. He's gentle, opposite of contentious. He's forbearing. He's patient. He's not slow to forgive. He doesn't hold a grudge. 
He's not unkind, but he's a reasonable, gentle person. Not quarrelsome. That is, he doesn't have a short fuse. He's not, not quick to be angry. He's not given to petty arguments. When someone disagrees, he doesn't blow up. And this will be tried because quarrelsome people <laughs> will come to him in the congregation from time to time, but he must be controlled. Then last in verse 3, his attitude toward money. Must not be a lover of money. Not going to be one of those who says, send me your seed faith. Plant your seed of faith in my garden and watch how God blesses me. I mean you. He's not greedy. He's not covetous. He's not driven by a desire for money. He's above all of that. And I think probably more to the point, since few people join, uh, aspire to the ministry for the, in order to get rich, I think the point here might be, in, at least involved in it, he's not motivated in his treatment of others by how much money they put in the offering plate. He doesn't show favoritism. Money is not his thing. He's more principled than that. And then verse 4. His family leadership. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So his family is well-ordered. His children are obedient and respectful. They're not uncontrolled or insubordinate. In verse 5, he elaborates, for if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the God's church? So he reasons from the lesser to the, to the greater. If he can't manage his house, how in the world is he going to manage the church? Again, it's just makes good sense, and that's why this is necessary. Verse 6, then, we have his spiritual maturity. He must not be a recent convert. Now, that's somewhat implied in the matter of able to teach, but here it's not just his learning abilities and teaching abilities, but in his character. He's not a recent uh, uh, convert. He's not only a believer, but there's a, a degree of maturity to him. He's an elder, after all. In the, six, the last part of verse 6, he elaborates on that. He, he, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. If even a capable man is elevated to the office too soon, he can become proud over it. It's a funny thing. We can make advance in grace and somehow think we are responsible for it. It's a crazy thing about our hearts that we can do that, but it's entirely true. And it takes a period of time before we realize that if I've made any progress at all, it is the grace of God at work in me. If it were not for the work of God in me, I'd be Demas. I am what I am by the grace of God. And it takes a while to recognize that and to, humble, to be humbled to see it. So don't put your hands on him too soon. Verse 7. His outside reputation, he must be well thought of by others so that he may not fall into disgrace or into a snare of the devil. This is simply, I think, verse 2, he must be above reproach, only applied to his reputation outside the church. He's known to be just, he's known to be honest, peaceable, loving, uh, he's not a rabble-rouser, he's a respectable man. All right, here are the, then, the qualifications for the office of elder. 
I want to make an, a few observations about this then before we're done. I'm going to have to hurry through this. Let me just say quickly the need for leadership that's obvious in this, that the work of oversight was desperately needed in every congregation and must have it. I'll have to pass on that for further comment. Number two, if you'd like to jot it down, the need for qualified leadership. What a sham it would be to relinquish this office to someone who's immature or ill-prepared or inexperienced and not able to, to fulfill the function of it. Qualifications must be upheld. Number three, and here I'm going to park for a little bit. Notice in these qualifications the emphasis and the emphasis is on Christian character. There's one exception to that. He must be able to teach. But the emphasis is on Christian character. It's not if he's a wealthy businessman or something like that. It's on character, maturity. He has the marks of spiritual attainment. That's what all of these things reflect. We preach a gospel that promises personal transformation. And those appointed to this office must be men who, are, who can demonstrate that that gospel is true in their own experience. The focus is on what the man must be in order to serve in this role. And what he must be in order to serve in this role is a model of Christian living. It would be men after whom everyone else can model their lives. They must be able to say he's honest, his words, his bond, he's faithful to his wife, he's not greedy of gain, he's not in this for himself aggrandizement, he's a Christian, and it's reflected in the way that he lives. It's not to say he's never made a ministerial mistake or said something he shouldn't have said, but it does say that in his character he's one who's respectable a model of Christian living. And I think an observation here is helpful. Paul, on a couple of occasions, says something in his letters that I think often strikes us as a little bit odd. Paul says, be imitators of me. You act like I act. You do what I do. And it just sometimes make you wonder, could you ever talk like that? Is that arrogant? Paul does qualify it, at least on one occasion. He says, be imitators of me as I am also of Christ. But still, there it is. I'm following Christ. You follow me so you can follow Christ like I do. Is that arrogant? I think that 1 Peter chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 are telling us that if a man cannot say that, he's not fit to be an elder. He must be one who's able to say, let me show you what it means to follow Christ. In my home, in the workplace, with others, let me show you what it means to be a Christian. And you as a congregation have every right, and in fact you have the responsibility for the future of this congregation to expect and to hold the hold responsibility hold elders responsible to this standard. They must be able to demonstrate and to show people this is what it's like to live for Christ. Now, elders who are worth anything at all will, just like the Apostle Paul, be very willing to say, I've not yet attained, I'm still striving for what's ahead, I don't have it all down yet. 
but still they must be men who are clearly distinguishable in terms of their prominent characteristics of men of virtue, men at whom, in whom the gospel has been at work, transforming their lives. That's the demand. And yet, there's always an and yet. And yet, lest you demand more than God does, let me give my fourth observation here, and I think this is marvelously important. And let me just call it this, the ordinariness of these qualifications. The ordinariness, is that a word? Is the ordinariness of these qualifications. I remember once going through this list of qualifications with Board of Elders a number of years ago, and reading through it, explaining briefly some of the things. And immediately when I was done, one of the elders said, oh, that's really daunting. And I I get that. I mean, this is not what we come by naturally. But I, I thought immediately, what part is daunting? Can't be a drunkard? Can't be unfaithful to your wife? Can't go around punching people in the nose? You can't blow up every time somebody disagrees with you? What, what's daunting about this? It's all pretty ordinary, isn't it? And I think that's just the point. What Paul is pressing here is that the elder must be one who can exemplify what every Christian ought to be. You can't be a drunk either. You can't go around punching people in the nose either. You can't be a drunk. You can't, you can't be blowing up and screaming every time somebody disagrees with you. But it's just the point that the elder is to be one who embodies what every Christian ought to be. Here, that's what we do. Follow him, that's what we are striving for. Watch him and see what it is to live for Christ. One more verse very quickly then. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. You remember the context here. Paul in 1st and 2nd Timothy and in Titus, he's writing to his younger son in the faith, Timothy, and then to Titus, and he's instructing them as to how to conduct the affairs of the church and so on. And here he says to Timothy, a younger man, 1st Timothy 4, verse 12, let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, until I come. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourselves in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will both save yourself and your hearer. Now here we have, we can't go through them, but we have uh, several, seven, seven imperatives here. Set an example, devote yourself, do not neglect the grip, practice these things, immerse yourself. These all these commands that he's given to Timothy. But I want you to notice in particular what he says then in verse 15. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them. Why? So that all may see your progress. That's a verse that has long chased me, so that all may see your progress. Now, no elder begins as a finished product. 
We all grow and we all need to grow in all kinds of ways. And in fact, recognizing that may prevent the congregation from being overly demanding on the man. We all have to grow. And yet, every elder is responsible to improve. To improve in his work in every aspect. He must be a model Christian, but years down the road, it ought to be demonstrated that he's more of a model Christian than he was. He has to be faithful. Down the road, you ought to be able to see that he's more faithful. He's more persevering. He must be able to teach. Down the road, you you should be able to notice that he's more able to teach. He has a deeper grasp of the Scriptures He's more able to teach and bring the word of God to bear on the lives of believers. He loves his people. But years down the road, he seems to love them better than he did before. Let your progress be known so that all may see your progress. Just as God calls every one of us to grow in grace, so he calls the elders in particular to progress in every aspect of their life and ministry. Well, God, in his good providence, has seen fit to provide RBC with a fourth elder. I'm grateful that God has prepared and equipped him for this. Pray that God will give him and the rest of us grace to do what we're called to do. We thank you for your support in it. You folks have been a wonderful congregation to to work in, and we trust that that will continue. We need to be in prayer together that God will continue to provide as he has for us so faithfully.